This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. This show is a co-production between My Father's Place Radio, My Father's Place Television, WCWP, and Taking Care of Business. We are honored, and with a capital H, we're honored to have Frank Carrillo. And just, just in case you don't know, he's got a, he's got a Wikipedia entry all, all about himself. Uh, I, I don't know a lot of people who could say that in the circle of people that I particularly know. He's got an incredible music resume. He has played with so many impressive people because he's impressive in his own right. And some, you know, we're going to name drop a little bit here, but some of the people he actually got to play with was George Harrison and Eric Clapton, just to name a few. And of course, there was Annie Golden. There's this, this band with the, the Bandoleros, and we're going to get to all, as they say in Italian, we're, we're going to get into the Gestichte. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I love that word. That's a good Italian word, Gestichte. All right. So, so, so you, you actually were from Queens. So I, that's something we have in common right there. Where, right. Where? I, was born in, I was born in East New York, and I grew up in Queens. What part of Queens? Uh, it was on the uh, Belrose um, border of um, Hollis, that area. Uh, well, I'm quite familiar with that. So uh, I went to Martin Van Buren High School. MVB. Okay, I went yes, to. Ba- I, I yep. went to. I went to Bayside. <laughs> uh-huh. So I think we had some school rivalries with you guys. So you never know. So, well. so was there anything really interesting about your childhood that? still resonates today in you. In well, I, yeah, absolutely. It was basically my parents because um, I was lucky enough to have, a, uh, have parents that, um, you know, my dad wanted me to go into a profession, but I started playing guitar when I was eight years old. And that's when I was, by the time I was 10, I, that's what I wanted to do. And, and they were great about it because as I got older, they realized that I wanted to be a musician, and I had friends whose parents were musicians, uh, the Benellis, and um, we had a little group in 1961, 62, and it was, it, my parents really were incredible because they were very supportive, and, you know, um, which, was, which was really odd because, you know, wanting to be a musician everybody looks at you and goes, no, you want to, you want to go into a profession. Well, it is a profession, but it was also a love. So yeah, that was the most important thing. I had really good support in, in my home. Did, did anyone give you a guitar or anything as a oh, birthday yeah. or I Christmas present? You, I, my, um, my dad, uh, I had played one or two years and um, my dad took me to the Gretsch factory in Brooklyn because my cousin Carl knew Dan Duffy, who was the uh, guy who was in charge of, of quality control at Gretsch. And they, they, I'll, I'll never forget it. I, they, we went to the Gretsch factory in Brooklyn on Broadway, and um, Dan Duffy took me on a tour. He showed me where all the guitars were made. And at the time, even the drums were also made in the same building, and also the plating and, and making all of the brass parts in the same building. This is before the Beatles uh, arrived in America. So, it, you know, when they did arrive in America, they had to get another whole building because of George. <laughs> but, uh, but I remember going in there and getting a, um, and, and my, my first really decent acoustic was a Corsair Gretsch. And I remember that my dad paid 60 bucks for it. And I'll never forget that he gave this woman who was polishing an extra $2 to really give it a good shine. Wow. And, in and those, this, was back, this was back in 1961, so, you know. And yeah. in, the, in those days, $60 was a lot of money. Yes, it was. It was. Right. And, uh, and I loved that guitar until I lent it to a friend of mine, and he sold it for some illicit substances or something. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but I had that guitar for a long time, and then, you know, I, I, was, a, I was playing Gretsch for a long, long time. But yeah, I, I was very lucky. I was really lucky. That was very exciting. And then on top of that, I remember sitting down and all of these like White Falcons and Chet Atkins stuff and all these Chet Atkins guitars. And it, it was it was almost like being high. It was incredible to be in that factory. It was, it was great. Was there anybody in your family 
that was musically oriented that you knew of? Yeah, my my mother's my mother's father and my mother's brother both played guitar and mandolin, and and I actually for the uh, played before I even took guitar lessons. My dad, my dad was in real estate, so he used to buy houses and and um, kind of flip them, fix them up. He was a real estate broker, and in this one particular home, there was this Gibson mandolin, and he asked the woman, you know, you. There's this mandolin in, in the upstairs room. She said, take it. I don't want it. Don't know what it is. So he brought it home. And my uncle Mike, my uncle Michael played mandolin, and he taught me how to play Beautiful Dreamer. And the reason was I used to watch Mighty Joe Young on, on, uh, on, on television, and that was the song that Mighty Joe Young loved. And my uncle taught me how to play it. He, and that was, the, um, that was the first thing I ever learned was on a mandolin. And then about a year later, I picked up guitar. So that was when I was seven. So about 1958, so when I was eight, I started guitar lessons. What, what did you learn then that you still hold on to from those lessons as an eight-year-old? Oh, just the love of it. And it, it, it was, what I learned was, I, I was not really, you know, I used to have to force myself to learn the technical things. But the feeling of the music and to get the excitement from playing a song or even just plucking around on the strings. And I still I still have that. When I sit down and I play some chords or some licks and it still makes me excited. And it, it makes me as excited now as it did then. I mean, you know, it's what I do. I don't know. So when, so when you were a kid in Queens, did you go to like any record stores? Absolutely. Which were the ones that which were the ones that you went to? Well, when I, when I was very young, there was a, um, and I'll tell you a story. It was 19, I'll never forget this. It was, it was 1958, 59. And my mother, I come home from school and my mother used to watch American Bandstand. And I, she was in the living room and she was kind of dancing around the living room while she was cleaning up. And this guy was playing this big Gretsch and it was Rebel Rouser and it was Dwayne Eddy. And I said to my mother, I want to do that. <laughs> and we went to this store on, on Union Turnpike. It was called Maze. Oh, I know Maze. That's like success, sort of. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they had like clothing, and there was two two stories, and they had a record department. And my mother would be shopping, and I would go through, you know, sit there like, I would stand there, it was just up to my chin, and go through the albums. And I, the first album, the first album that I ever got was um, Have Twangy Guitar, Will Travel, Dwayne Eddy. And I wore that thing out. Wow. I did. I wore it out. And it was, uh, it was pretty incredible. So, uh, that was it. It was always that. And my parents were cool too, because they bought me a little Victroller and these like 45s. I remember one of them was, uh, Louis Armstrong and another one was Harry Belafonte. And another one was, um, Judy Garland, uh, singing over the rainbow. So those were the very first records I got. My first album was Dwayne Eddy. Now, do you remember, this is going to, this is going to be like a little nostalgia trip for us. Do you remember like the little spacers that they used on the 45s to make up the space? Because the 45. Absolutely. The right, little so, plastic things. Right. So I showed that to, to some kids at WCWP and I said, do you know what this is? And they, <laughs> and they were like, I, I don't know. What is that? It's like, is that for a computer? <laughs> you know? And, and, and I actually had, I had the kind of, um, we had a portable record player too, because it was a record player. And it kind of had this solid thing. It was like a solid tower piece. Right. You they know. used to stack the 45s right. on. Right. And then they would drop down. You right. Know? And I said, do you know what this is? And they're like, no idea. You know? <laughs> and it's so I funny know. because now I, to just share a little bit, I, I went to Corvettes. Um, and right, I, re I remember EJ Corvettes. EJ sure. Corvettes, and I remember like records were essentially two ninety nine, three ninety nine. Yeah, and, and I remember like you, you went to Mays. I, I remember going to Corvettes in Douglaston, and that's where you go get the records and things like that. And then there was a couple little record stores, uh, like in the Bayside area, right. that sold the forty five. So yeah, yep. Now, mm -hmm. do you still have the first forty five or the, that 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 the first LP that you own? Do you still have those? I still have the first LP. Uh, 45s, no, because when I moved a couple of times, the 45 box was, used to keep them in a little box and, uh, they're gone, but I still have 
Uh, I still have my Dwayne Eddy albums, and um, you know, I don't know if, what they'd sound like now because, like I said, you probably could look up at light and and see through it because that's how much I yeah. played it. But uh, no, I, I just have uh, I just have the albums. When you purchased an album, what could you share with all of us what that was that experience was like when you opened it up and you took it out and you looked on the on the the, the back cover and you looked at the cover art and well, you had lyrics. It all. I mean, it was so it was so exciting. Albums were amazing for a number of reasons. First of all, you had all of these songs on one record, and then the other thing is that you had all all of the information and the pictures and. It was exciting. Just, I mean, sometimes when we couldn't afford a record, we would just go to the to the record store and just look at the covers and just look at the front and back covers and read everything. Who produced what? Who was an engineer? Um, you know, it, it was it was an exciting experience. And you know, I remember the first time I heard a CD. I was I was uh, in England. I was with Mick Ralph from Bad Company, and Mick was had just bought one of the first CD players. And it sounded amazing, but then he handed me the the box or the the, the jewel case, yep, yep. <laughs> and and I and I looked at it, and it was disappointing because you really had to like struggle to see the artwork. And part of the great thing about an album was the artwork. I mean, they really went out of their way to make it really, really uh, to to make it look good, and to make it because the record sounded great, and I don't know, maybe uh. I just wrote a song that called 20th Century Boy. I'm a 20th Century Boy. I mean, I miss a lot of that, you know? And uh, a lot of the music now is like kind of squashed down. The sound is not quite as hi-fi, to use an old phrase, or, and the fidelity is not as great. Sometimes it is, but uh, I kind of miss those old albums. I really do, and I still play them. Do you, do you have a disc washer? <laughs> you remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Oh God! I wonder where you get the liquid for that because I remember, I remember, like you know, you you take out the dishwasher. It had that rel- right. red velvet thing on it. Yeah, and, the, the and, parastatic disc preener right. was called. Right, and then you would you would spritz on some kind of liquid, and then right. you'd see all the schmutz all that come yeah. right off the grooves, and you're like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> but 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 that's where the hisses and pops and all that great stuff came from. You, you know? know what I used to love. And, and that I miss with CDs. This is what I love. You know when you used to drop the needle on and you'd hear that yes, air? Yes. The air until it hit in. Or sometimes when an album, especially like a Zeppelin record, which Jimmy would, 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 would um, he'd master it really hot, really hot. You would drop the needle on and you would hear the song very faintly start before the song actually started. That's because he, he mastered it really, really hot. I miss all of those little things, you know, um, but Hey, you know, I was, I was talking about, about this with, with someone recently that we were talking about the 1920s and 78s and going from 78s to long playing records and 45s, everything evolves, you know, life changes and everything evolves and everybody looks back, you know, fondly. Oh, I remember those days. Yeah, that was great. But you know, things do evolve and things get better and that's it. I, I remember yeah. Carlos Santana, I think, said on Rockline, change is inevitable, but that growth is an option. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. So, God so, bless that man. So let's talk about radio. What did you okay. listen to? What did you listen to as a kid? What were the stations and the... Oh, I, easy. That was easy. I used to have um, my cousin Nick and I, he, he, was, he became the drummer of our band, The Young Blues. And we used to have uh, a Zenith... Um, transistor radio each, and we used to listen to WMCA and WABC. Yeah, and we used to go back and forth, and like he'd catch one song, he goes, "Go to MCA," or "Go," you know. It, it, yeah, we used to listen to that. That was our thing, you know. Um, there really wasn't any high fidelity in the house. I mean, that came later. So we were listening. My mom used to listen to an old Emerson radio. Besides her liking. Um, American Bandstand, she, she used to have this old Emerson radio and she used to listen to the make-believe ballroom and all this stuff. There was always music in the house, constantly music in the house. I remember WABC radio. I remember yep. like Dan Ingram and yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Harry Harrison and all, you know, yep. just... all those guys, cousin Brucey. And then there was, you know, uh, oh God, and the MCA guys. 
Yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. And uh, who was the one who did the uh, the the submarine? It was Murray the K. Yeah. I mean, it was just great. And then we used to go see Murray the K, and he used to have the show. And I'll remember seeing one show, which is amazing. It was this is in the '60s now. It was Cream. It was the uh, Blues Project. James Brown. I mean, I can't tell you. It was, everybody did one or two songs, and then they had to get off the stage. And they used to do three shows a day. It was at the Brooklyn Fox, and it was it was amazing. It was just a, a lot of fun and exciting. And the great thing about it was when bands, you know, now you can see a band or an artist anytime you want. Just go online, go to YouTube, you know, put it in, and you've got them right there. And a whole playlist to boot, yeah. Yeah, but we used to have to wait. We wait and be excited about a band coming to town. It didn't matter who it was, really, because it was very rare that you would see anybody live. And occasionally you'd see them on the TV shows like Color Blue and Shindig and or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, it, 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 the anticipation I think was as much fun as actually seeing the bands. Well, you know, for me it was sort of interesting because you'd go to the record stores and then if a new album would suddenly materialize. You're like, oh my God, it's the new, you know, name the artist, you know, album. <laughs> it's right. like, yeah. It's like, oh wow, you know? And, and- I, I remember like uh, Paul Orofino, who owns Millbrook Sound Studios, my producer and my close friend. He, I mean, we were talking about this recently. Like, when, if, if a, an album if a, or a single was going to be released, let's say The Stones, uh, uh, Everybody would like, hey, meet me at my house, and they'd sit in the garage with the radio on, you know, and, every, and it was a very communal thing. I think the only thing I really miss about all of this in the music business now, or, the, or music in general, is that music is not as communal as it was. Well, that's I mean, it, was, we... it was a tribal thing. It really was a tribal thing. So you got to hang with your friends. You got to listen to music. I mean, people like Epi over at my father's place, God bless that man. He used to pull people together. And it was, again, it was tribal. And, and it was great, you know. And now everybody walks down the street with their earbuds in. And uh, I don't know how many young people get together to listen in a group and get excited about a new song that's coming out. You know, I kind of feel bad about that. But... Like I said, everything everything moves forward, and that's the way it is. Now, speaking of that's the way it is, we have to take a quick break. This is Frank Carolla with Richard Solomon. We'll be right back. All right, Richard Solomon, I am honored, and I mean honored truly honored to have Frank Rilla with me. And uh, we're talking about rock and roll and music. And I guess the golden age of rock and blues and the classic music that we still cherish today. But, you know, we were there when it kind of happened. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. You know, so let's skip forward. We'll skip around because I like being unpredictable. So we, we're in the, we, 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 you know, we have this whole thing now where right now we're sort of uh, streaming and other things because we don't really have the opportunity to be in front of live audiences. That, right. That's got to be a tremendous disconnect for you. It really is. I mean, I I think I'm, you know, I I'm not afraid. I, I don't have a fear or a nervousness of being on stage in front of five hundred people or twenty thousand people. You know, like we did, like when I did the Golden Earring fiftieth anniversary in 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 Europe. I mean, it, those kinds of well, the Bad Company tour. We were every night. We were, we were on, in another uh, coliseum. But being in front of just a camera and you, you're not having a reaction because it's just a camera, it is disconcerting. But, you know, that's the way it is now. And at least people can listen to the music and the ones that want to listen will tune in. It's just hard because I haven't seen the guys in the band in four months. I mean, we're in touch, but we can't get together. And, and we had two tours canceled, Eddie, Eddie Seville and I. Eddie Seville is the drummer of, of the Bandoleros, but Eddie is also a singer-songwriter in his own right. And we've been, the last couple of years, going to Europe as a duo doing an acoustic thing. And then we were going to do that in March, and then we were going to 
follow up with a band tour with the Bandoleros. Well, that's all been moved till until 2021, and hopefully it'll come down then. But I miss the guys. I miss sitting with people. You know, one of the great things that I get to do as, as somebody who does the radio is normally I would, after a show, uh, go up to the artist and, and introduce myself and would be like, oh, yeah, I'm Rich Solomon from the radio. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. Right, what right, you do during yeah. the sound check. And you shake hands, you take a picture, you know, all that great stuff. And yeah. uh, you share, or, you know, you or you break out of your vinyl record collection, something, and you say, I, I still have this, you know, and it kind of, and you the talk. communication yeah, is important. You share your favorite songs or memories or whatever. And I'm, I'm sure you must miss that fan connection because I don't care how great social media is. I've always felt that the real social media, like you said, was being in the garage with your friends and listening to the music on the radio or an album, that tribal thing where everybody, you know, as a group did something together. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Communal I mean, I, it, thing. This is tough right now. It really is yeah. tough. All right, so, yeah, so, I'm not into the social, you know, the social media. Thing. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've got a website and, 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 and uh, we've got Facebook. I, I really, it, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's impersonal. And as much as the people are wonderful, like when we go to Europe and those people that write on Facebook, or they're at the shows, that's great. But that's the part that's great is that you actually can see the people and you, you they're human beings and it's not just something on a page. So I miss that a lot. And now with this Corona thing and, and the COVID, it, it's, it's going to be difficult for a while. I really, I really feel bad about that. I mean, so many people want to play. And you know what? I, I know a lot of artists are doing Zoom shows from their right. homes and things like that. But you do see like a tinge of bittersweetness or sadness that, you know, look, I'm still out there, but it, it's no, I don't think anybody really wants to perform from, the, from their living room or their den, you know, as no. much as they want to be in the mix with real people, the, the energy, the vibe, the schlepping of equipment and, you know, sound checks and talking to oh the guy my in God. the sound. My wife, always, my wife always tells me, you know, you complain days before you go on the road or days before a gig until you get to that day before and then you're happy again because you're going to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those things are part of the tribal thing of meeting people. You know, it scares me that there are so many people that the only friends or the only people they're in contact with, they're on the internet. And that's kind of weird, but you know, it's what it is. Yeah. So let's talk about, you mentioned golden earring. So a very good friend of mine from Holland, Hank, uh, Hank, um, he's a huge golden earring fan. And, and I know that you had a lot. Could you talk about your, I know you have a very close friendship um, with some people from the band. I know you help produce a lot of their uh, music, especially the, the more recent stuff. Could you just shed a little light on that? Cause, well, you know. yeah, I've, I'm, I've known them for, uh, I've known the, the guys for, uh, God, it's got to be almost 30 years. It is 30 years. In fact, I was on the phone today with George Coyman's, the lead guitarist and one lead singer and one of the main guys in the band. Because we're we're doing a second album together, and but now we're doing it, you know, via internet. Um, well, the rest of it we recorded, but the last couple of songs we're doing this way. I, I've known them for for a lot of years, and they've been really great friends. And George's family and my family are very close. So we, when we can, we we vacation together. They're here or I'm there, and uh, I don't know what to say, but they've been really good to me. And I've played on a couple of their records. The one in I got Chris Kimsey, producer, engineer, who's done The Stones and just about everybody, Peter Frampton and all these people. And I got Peter, I got um, Chris together with George. We ha George and Millie, his wife, and my wife, Barbara, we happen to have gone to, I was in Belgium, we were in Belgium, and we decided to fly to London for a couple of days. And I called up Chris and Chris Kimsey, who's a brilliant engineer and producer. He did steel wheels. He worked on tattoo you and probably goes back all the way to, uh, sticky fingers and all that stuff. And he produced two of my albums as well as Peter Frampton. Anyway, uh, I got them together and he wound up doing, uh, the tits and ass album that we did in, in London about, I guess it's about five years ago. So, you know, the, the, they're just good friends and they've been great for me. Um, 
I got to tell you one really good story. I love stories. <laughs> George Coyman's and Barry Hay, the lead singer, the two of them, um, they discovered a singer. Her name is Anouk. And they called me and, and they were going to produce a record for her. And they called me up and they said, listen, George said, do you have a bluesy ballad or something? So I was fooling around with this thing. And my wife, Barbara said, you know, you ought to finish that. It was called time as a jailer. So I, I, Put it was cassette, believe it or not. I put a cassette on. I, I I sang it right, just straight in with my guitar. Sent it over, and they loved it. And so they said, "What? We're going to fly you over. We want you to play guitar on it." And she wants to do the the song. And I got to tell you how amazing these guys are. They had every right to ask me for, which most artists would do, for a piece of the publishing for getting it on this record. And they never did, never asked me for a thing. And then they called me back and said, you got something else. And I wrote something called Pictures on Your Skin. Then they set me up to meet with the record company and publishers. And I had no idea what they wanted. Uh, I, I was finishing my last tour with Annie Golden. And they called me and said, would you come and have lunch with us in Hilversum? And I had no idea what they wanted, but I said, sure. So I went down and they said, we want to administer the publishing on those two songs and we'll give you X amount of advance. Well, by the time it was all said and done and I went home, the album had sold 1.6 million copies already. Wow. <laughs> and, and you know, and it, God bless them. They, they never asked me for a thing. They just said, Frank, this is, just do it. Cause they're just wonderful people, really, really fair, not only fair, but just really generous, incredible people. The whole band, Renus and, 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 and Barry and, and George and, uh, and Cesar, great guys. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's one of my thank you very much. <laughs> well, all I can say is, I, like I said, I have friends in Holland who are huge fans. So maybe, maybe I'll talk to you after, maybe you could help me get an interview with those guys at some point. Oh, I could it, definitely do that. That, I that, would, that would be cool. today. Yeah, that would be cool. All right, but let's keep talking okay. about you right now. Right. So, so since we're already talking about all these uh, musical experiences, um, in pre-production, you and I were talking, and I was saying to you, you have, at least to me, a great distinctive honor because you played with two people who wrote a very powerful, you know, well-known you know, well songs about the same woman. And that was um, Eric Clapton, who wrote Layla, and George Harrison, who wrote something in the way she moves, and they were both about Patty Boyd Harrison. Um, can we talk about just those two musicians and your interactions with them? Well, it's funny. I, I never, even when I when I was signed to Atlantic and I was had records out and I was touring all over the place back in the late seventies, I never used to talk about that because George, to me, was he he was a wonderful guy, treated me very well. He used to stay at Friar Park, and he treated me like a kid brother. And we used to sit down occasionally and we would play guitar sitting in the living room. Um, I learned more from George just by talking to him and sitting in the studio with him. And when he was kind of mixing things and, and doing things and, and he was, uh, uh, he was a map giver. George would give you something, he'd give you something and say, yeah, run with this, go over here with this. Um, very, uh, a big influence on me knowing him. Eric, on the other hand, was, the, the couple of times I played with him was once at Ringo's New Year's Eve party, and we had a nice time and everything, but he wasn't in the best of health at the time. But he was still fantastic, and uh, the times that I were, you know, that I was in his company with, if, when I was with Yvonne Elliman, her husband was the head of RSO Records, and so I got to be in Eric's company a lot. Um, he, he was going through some rough times, but he's an amazing guy and a terrific, terrific musician, also an influence. Did you read Eric Clapton's book? Yes, I did. What do you think of it? I thought it was very honest. Um, basically, I thought it was very honest because a lot of the stuff that he talked about, I saw firsthand. In fact, when, when I was, when I married, we got married, my first, my ex-wife and I were married, um, Yvonne Elliman was at our wedding and 
She was in Eric's band at the time. So we were going to go on a honeymoon to the Bahamas. So she called Patty and I had met Patty years before when she was married to George and um, said that Gay and I were going to be in the Bahamas. So Patty had a little dinner for us while we were there. And the next day she took us to the races and we had a good time. But Eric was off somewhere. I don't know what he was doing. Um, and I don't, I don't know, uh, you know, I, those kinds of things I really don't like to talk about. She was, uh, yeah. it was really, it was, it was very telling. You know, he was going through some tough times, Eric. And, and in his book, he talks about those tough times. So like I said, it was very honest. Did you see his documentary was a life in uh, life in 12 bars it was on Showtime? Did you, it was very interesting. He, he talked I, a lot. About I haven't that. seen it yet. Yeah. No. So, so tr- just to break the, the, you know, the momentum here for a second, I saw today on the internet, a picture of the Rolling Stones <laughs> and cause oh. you were talking, and what they had was um, three out of the four members of the band were wearing masks. And of course, Keith Richards wasn't, you know, it was obviously it was an, <laughs> Well, like Obviously, it was, a, it was a parody photo, but it was actually funny, and it kind of tells you a lot about rock and roll and and people, yeah. you know, <laughs> and like the rock and roll spirit. So, kind of, can I? And I thought, and I said, you know, that kind of makes sense. So, yeah, well, that's Keith. I got to tell you something about Keith, though. He is number one, one of the sweetest men I've ever met, and he doesn't. You would think he would have no memory. He remembers everything, everything where he first met you, where we were. And I haven't seen Keith in, God, 20 years. But if I did now, he would know exactly where the last... He's an amazing human being. Amazing. Brilliant man. Incredibly intelligent. And an incredible talent. But, you know, I don't... I think, like everybody says, if there was a nuclear war, the cockroaches and Keith would still be alive. (laughs) So with all these great musicians that you've partnered, duetted, met, hung out with, what what did you... What, what kind of like still stays with you that they either, you know, like either, I don't know, some ideas, techniques, you know, aha moments or inspirational, like, cause, cause well, you know, Peter Frampton gave me my first really big break. When Peter left humble pie, we were, we met when he was in humble pie and when Peter, I always admired his guitar playing and, and because he was a big jazz uh, fan. He loved West Montgomery still does. Um, and all these other cats. And he, you know, he turned me on to a, a bunch of things. I had never heard about, heard of Django Reinhardt until Peter turned me on to the records. So he, he had an influence as far as uh, playing, but, he, you know, he was also a close friend. I mean, he, he would stay at my parents' house when I was away and I would come home. And I remember coming home one night, I had come off a plane from somewhere and my mother is standing at the door with a plate of food. I said, hi, mom. And she said, be quiet because Peter's here and he's writing a song. I said, well, what are you doing with the food? She goes, well, I'm bringing him his dinner in, in the other room so he can write. I go, mom, you never did that for me. <laughs> Somebody's been sleeping in my bed. <laughs> my, and that's when he wrote at my parents' house, lines on my face. Oh, wow. And that line um, of uh, so many people, a family of friends, is is about my parents, really. It's about, I mean, he stayed there a, a lot, and he was and is a great friend. And uh, he, he gave me a, you know, he brought me along. I mean, he introduced me to, so, he introduced me to George. Is that right? How did he oh, know yeah. George? How did he know George from the Sgt. Pepper movie? No, oh. God. he Peter is on... All things must pass on that album. Oh, George I didn't know left. That. The, oh yeah, yeah. George, he's on. He's he's actually on. Um, All things must pass. He's on. Uh, he's on a bunch of the tracks on acoustic guitar. He was. Um, he, George had knew that he was such a good guitar player, and they became friends. And he actually was asked to do the Bangladesh concert, but Peter had you know was playing with the Pie in another state, so he kind of couldn't get there for rehearsals. And he, I think he arrived the day of the concert. And then we were staying in New York city. And, um, that's when uh, Peter and I were in at stay at a hotel in the city at the park lane. And we met, that's when he introduced me to Terry Doran. I don't know, you know, Terry is, but you should look him up. He, He was the man from the motor trade. Um, Terry, Terry was the head of Apple publishing. He was, uh, 
took care of George's estate. He was a close friend of the Beatles from like the very early, early days. And um, so I met Ted then. And then um, I wound up taking a, a two week vacation from gigging and went over to London. And Peter picked me up at my hotel and I said, listen, how's the band doing? And he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, I quit Humble Pie. I'm doing a solo album and you're playing on it. Wow. And I didn't, <laughs> I kind of, I couldn't even say wow. So, and then the next day he said, we're going to go for a ride. We're going to go to Windsor Castle and then we're going to go to Friar Park. And that's when I met George the first time. And, uh, and it was, it was quite amazing. But yeah, Peter was a, an influence and very generous in introducing me to a lot of people. All right. This is Richard Solomon, Frank Carolla, who's got stories that are gems. We will be right back. You do not want to leave the dial. Hang in here. All right, welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon, Frank Carrillo, who's an amazing, amazing musician, a great human being, an honor for us to have him on the show. And I'm holding in my hand the Golden Earring 50 Years Anniversary album, and it's got four CDs and a DVD. So, uh, you know, it's got all it's got all the stuff, and I'm sure. And so you're in here, right? You, you're in, you're buried in here, all over the place. I should be, yeah. yeah. Millbrook, USA, Titsinas, and also the live 50th anniversary concert. Yeah, it was that was great. That was at the Zigadome. It was like 20,000 people. It was a lot of fun. Wow. So, uh, God bless those guys. So, so for all those Golden Earring fans out there, this is like cool stuff. And you're working on new stuff with them as we speak? I'm working on a new, new, uh, second album with George. Um, uh, George and I did one album, the Coneyman's Gorilla record about seven years ago. I don't even remember. And then we did a bunch of tours over there when the hearing and my band were off the road. And now George and I are finishing up a second record. Uh, we're just about done. We had recorded, but now we're, we're doing the last couple of songs, you know, uh, via the internet because we really can't all get together. But most of it, we had already recorded over there, over, in, over Georgia studio in Belgium and also here at Millbrook sound. So most of that album is recorded in, in the studio with the guys. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be fun. And George and I were just having a, a laugh today about finishing a particular song called Den of Thieves. So I'm not saying any more. <laughs> All right. Well, bre- breaking news. So you heard it here first. There's, there's cool stuff coming down the pipeline. In currently, okay. When you, when you wrote all the music that you wrote over all those years, you know, I heard you talk about cassettes and things like that. How is your writing, the capturing of the writing changed? Because, you know, it's different now. It's not always, do you, like, do you have like little micro recorders or, you know, do you have computers? Like, what do you do to capture the, that beautiful music that's being created, you know, sort of, you know, in your head? How do you get that expressed now? And how is it different when you did it in the, you know, decades ago? It's really not that different. The only thing that I'm using differently believe it or not, instead of using a cassette player or, or a tape recorder, which we did back in the 60s and the 70s, I'm using my, uh, my iPhone. And, and just when I have an idea and I'll put it on the iPhone and then I'll, I'll develop it from there. Um, but I still like to write the lyrics in a book with pen and ink. Um, I do put it also on the computer, but I like to, the original stuff... I write it in a book, and it's uh, it's really not that much different. It's just that the music has evolved. I mean, the, the whole thing was years ago when I was really young in my 20s. You know, it was like everything was quick. Oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, and I got to write a song. And I just realized you just can't push it. So just now it's become a lot easier because I don't, I don't, um, I don't fuss over it, you know? And and I just record it. And then when I go into the studio, I have flesh it out as far as arrangement with the band or myself and, and Paul Orofino, my producer. I'll flesh it out that way um, and just record it and record it like we used to. In fact, a lot of the recording we do is the vocal and the tracks are done live. Not all of them, 
but a lot of them will do the vocal while we're cutting the track, which is really exciting because you're getting that excitement down. Now, anyway, do you sleep? Do you sleep and drive with like pads and pens all around just in case you have like an idea? You know, you're in traffic or in the shower, you're half asleep and you have, oh, I, you know, you have some kind of, you know, chord no, progression. You know, the last time, Richard, the last time I did that, I got pulled over by a cop. <laughs> I, I'll tell you the story. I had, I had, I went to visit my friend Hillary Schindler and she had her house in Jersey and uh, I hadn't seen her in 30 years and all of my friends from my childhood were all going to be there. And, um, so we had a really nice afternoon and it was really great. And I'm on the way home and she lived on a street called Chapel Street. And all of a sudden I decided, oh my God, I had a great idea for the song and about kind of that day, you know. And I started writing it on a, on a pad and pencil on, on the side, you know, uh, to my right. And apparently I was not paying attention and a cop pulled me over and uh, I said, really, I'm really sorry, officer, but, you know, I got this idea for a song and he looked at me and he goes, OK. And he went back and he said, uh, I hope the song turns out really well. And he handed me a ticket. <laughs> but I'll never forget that. But that's that was the only time I ever did that in a car or anything. Usually it's I have to sit down on my own or with if I'm writing with um, with George, we can sit. And I could play and he could be cooking or I could be cooking and the girls could be whatever they're doing. Um, it's got to be relaxed. It really does. And I write better on my own, like Ian Hunter said, you know. So, yeah, okay. Uh, let's, she let's, leaves me alone because I, I write better on my own. So let's talk about that because I, I, that was one of the questions I actually kind of had. So, so you're actually in an Ian Hunter song. So, yeah, yeah. so you, let's talk about that because I don't know a lot of people that were mentioned in Ian Hunter songs. <laughs> You know, so, I didn't even know I was in an Ian Hunter song until I got a call from somebody at LIR. Oh, that was it, Dennis McNamara? It wasn't Dennis. It was somebody else. They said, Frank, because I was finishing up my album, my last album for Atlantic, and Ian was doing, uh, I forgot, oh, what was her name? She was, he was, uh, Mick, Mick Ronson and, he, and, and Ian were producing an album, and we were all staying at the Mayflower Hotel. So after the sessions, we'd all get, gather in the bar, and we'd have drinks, and we'd hang out and stuff. And that went on for weeks. The next thing I know, a few months later, I get a phone call from, it might have been Dennis, and he, and he said, uh, turn on the radio, you're, you're on the, the new Ian Hunter record. I said, no, I'm not. I didn't play on it. <laughs> he goes, turn it on. And sure enough, there it was, Central Park and West. And like, I was floored. I had no idea that Ian did that. Yes, yeah, right. Dennis, I know Dennis, you know, from radio in my father's place. And I interviewed him uh, at the station and he told a great story. He was on his way to LIR. Oh, by the way, for, the, for those out there, it's in our archives. So check it out at uh, go to the SolomonChannel.com and you'll find your way to uh, our archives. But Dennis is telling this great story where uh, he's driving to work, to get, getting to the station. I guess he stopped off at, um, you know, to get coffee. And I guess he's listening to the radio. And he hears shk, shk, and, and shk, and it's like it's like that's all he hears on LIR. Shk. So so he goes, "Do you know what that was?" I said, "Yeah, that's that's the end of the album." <laughs> right. So so he said so. Obviously, the DJ like passed out or something. You know, yeah. fell asleep and ran up the stairs and you know recued the record. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know that's the funny thing is that that's what radio was really like way back when when people it was took exciting yeah. it really was exciting did, did you, you didn't know what was going to happen did you do the radio interview thing you know did you go on like any of the radio stations like at LIR and actually like go oh on yeah the air and I mean take calls? I did it all across the country and the problem was the especially when I had first signed to Atlantic and I had a first record out. I would, I, I, that was the only thing that really bothered me is because I wasn't with the guys because I had to be a day ahead to meet up with all the, the Atlantic reps to go to all the radio stations, you know, and it was exhausting, but you know, I was younger. It didn't matter, but you know, I, I was, I felt like separate from the guys, but yeah, I did all of the stations. I used to, I rem you know, who was a lot of fun was Scott Muni. Oh, sure. The professor. <laughs> oh my God. He could drink 
anybody under the table and still walk out completely sober. He was amazing. And Tunz Aram from Atlantic, after I did a record, we'd always go into the city and sit with Scott, and it was fantastic. Yeah, we used to do all, we did that. We did PLJ. We did, I remember we were on the, uh, it was us, Tom Petty, and us, and, and Rick Derringer on a, on, a, on a run of about 10 dates and flying in from Cleveland. We did the Cleveland Music Hall and then flying in to do the Palladium. It was Tom and us and Rick and having to fly in directly to go to PLJ. Yeah, we did all that stuff. What, what did you really like about that and what did you not care for? Uh, uh, you know what? I, I, I like people, so it wasn't so bad. It's um, I, it was just very tiring, you know. And you had to do a show, and you were talking a lot, and I had to sing. I didn't really think about it. I, I don't think there was anything I disliked about it. I, I thought it was exciting. I remember, you know, um, you're signed to a major label, you're on a major tour, you're playing with people that you admire, and it was great. It was it was a lot of fun. And I didn't find the DJ. I found the DJs to be really, uh, Kid Leo was the best. I loved him. There were so many of them. Um, but they were really good. And, you know, they, they treated you with respect and they asked questions that were intelligent. And, you know, when something came up that was stupid, I just didn't answer. I miss, I, I personally miss the artist interview format. You know, I, I, I you know, I remember, you know, all of the, you know, Carol Miller, Allison Steele, uh, yeah. Scott Muni, and, you know, the, you know, everybody. Allison Steele. Yeah. I mean, that was a great thing with Allison. Yeah. And, and when, when they talked to the artists and they had people come in and they talk about the, the current album, the current tour, mm-hmm. I, I personally thought that that was magical. It but, was magical. And, I, we used to do this thing that was great that Allison Steele had, not only was she on NEW, she used to have a, a syndicated radio show. And so she was in the studio. And I remember being sent over there and sitting down and waiting to be interviewed. And there was someone else that she was interviewing, finishing up. And the door opened and Allison came out. And she goes, Frank, I'd like you to... To me, I'd like to introduce you to Roy Orbison. Wow. I almost fainted. I really did. I grabbed it. He was so nice. He was wonderful. I, you know, he said, she said, I'd like you to meet a living legend, Roy Orbison. That's what she said. Wow. So then I went in and you know, we, we spoke for a little bit. And Roy left and I went in and did the interview with Allison. And then when I came out, she said, Frank, I'd like to introduce you to another living legend. And it was Ian Hunter. And we looked at each other and we went, drop dead. <laughs> she looked at she freaked. And then we started to laugh. I mean, but, but, you know, it was really, those were great. You know, you got to talk about the records and you got to talk about the, the uh, how you did it, where you did it, where you're going. And, you know, it was terrific. It was a lot of fun. Do you have any of your interviews archived anywhere? No. Ah. You know, and you know, it's really, I, I, I don't kind of do things like that. And, and I regret a lot of stuff, like a lot of photos, like the photos with me and, and, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And Rick, I have a couple of things with Rick Derringer and, and a few people, but I, you know, I, I would put them in a box and my wife found them um, when George Harrison passed away. Um. I, I, I was really upset, so I got in the car and I took a ride through the through the woods here. When I came back, my wife found this box that was in the closet, and it was all of the things that I, that George had 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 given me, like uh, Christmas cards and a, and a and a letter that he wanted me to be signed to Arista Records and all this stuff. And she, you know, God bless her, she she got it all together and put it in a in a frame and and and. But I, I, you know, I, I don't, no, I don't have anything like archived. I really don't. I'd have to really look. But none of the interviews, I don't have any of those. Because wouldn't it be, I, I think it would great, be great if you could somehow take a progression of your interviews of, you know, across the span of time and just kind of see your evolution through an, the interview process. I think that'd be really cool. 
You know? Yeah, I think it would be too. And I, I really don't know where to start. You know, maybe my ex-manager has stuff, but you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not really in touch with him and, uh, that would be great, but I certainly don't have any of those tapes because I never really kept them. I never thought about it. You know what I mean? Is that because it's you like lived in the moment? We, it was something that we did at the moment, and then next, you know, it wasn't like you know I want to listen to this when I go home. I I, I never thought of it that way. I probably should have. Well, okay. So for all those out listening, so if you happen to have an archive copy of a Frank Carrillo interview somewhere <laughs> along the line, so I'm talking to Dennis. McNamara and Carol Miller and all the people out there <laughs> uh, who are listening in potentially. Um, you know, I, I, Dennis is over on WUSB with Mark Green from my father's place. So we're going to reach out and see if we could pull some of these interviews together. Cause I think it'd be really cool to have a retrospective of some of your interviews interspersed with some of the things that you do. Cause you have all this great stuff on the internet. Um, in fact, one cool thing that you have on the internet is you and Andy Golden at CBGB's. Uh, yeah, I I don't even know who filmed that, and it sound the sound was really good. I think that was ninety three, right? Yeah, yeah. So talk about that. Uh, talk, let's talk about CBGBs and Annie Golden because we didn't cover that now. Well, Annie, Annie and I, Annie and I met through Darlene Love, and um, she was writing some poetry, and I wrote this song. Uh, about Clara Bow, because I read this book about Clara Bow, the, the, the 20s actress. And she wanted, always wanted to play Clara Bow. So anyway, uh, I played the song for her, and, she, and I, I read some of her poetry. I said, why don't you write a, a, a verse to this? And that's how it started. So we started writing some songs, and then we started doing this duo thing. And it just evolved into who knows what. I mean, it, it, really, got, it really got big in, in Europe. I mean, it, it started out with four people showing up and got to the point where they used to have to lock the doors so to get people in. It was really fun at the beginning to do that. And Annie, and Annie was, uh, you know, she was an actress and a singer, but CBGB's was because her, CBGB was where the shirts, her band, the shirts would play all the time because uh, Hilly Crystal was her manager who owned CBGB. So we used to go into, we used to get, a, you know, a spot every once in a while. And then it started to take off and we used to play there a lot. And we got to, I got to meet all the people that I never knew, like, you know, in the, in the punk era. I mean, guys like Cheetah Chrome and all these people that I never had anything to do with, but she knew all of them. And, you know, from, from, from that time. So it was really interesting. And, uh, and it, 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 it went really well until it ended. You know, yeah, all yeah. things must pass. That that would make the great and a name for a great album. <laughs> yeah, right. Gee, I wonder. You know, you know, it's interesting. You know, we only have like a minute on FM radio, but we're gonna. If it's okay, I want to keep you on a little bit longer, uh, sure. and, and talk because you have great stuff. I know that from what I heard, Eric Clapton was very instrumental in forcing George to tour because he was be like, you know, you know, you kind of need to tour, and he'd be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, you know, it's interesting. Did you see any of that? Actually, we're going to be running out of time. So let's do this. We're going to say goodbye for now on FM. So uh, thank you for listening. But we're going to continue this because we're going to have a lot of bonus time after this. So this is Richard Solomon. Thank you, Frank Carrillo. Don't go anywhere because this is priceless stuff. Um, well, thank you. I'm having, I'm having a really good time. Me too. So the party will continue. So we'll, find, we'll, we'll, find, we'll, we'll give you further instructions on where to listen to the rest of this. But for now, stay <laughs> safe out there. It's Richard Solomon and with an in, a debt of gratitude to Frank Carrillo. We'll be back next time. So I'll see you soon.